Hello and welcome to this special elections episode of The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode we're making a departure from our regular weekly programme to round off a series of daily debates which delve into the local issues at the heart of the elections on May the 5th. Council elections are an opportunity to cast a vote about vital services affecting our daily lives. Local authorities oversee the running of schools, they collect council taxes, they organise bin collections and a lot more besides. So why are they so often seen as the poor relation of Holyrood and Westminster elections? Too often, these local votes are overtaken by rehashed debates between the leading parties with an eye on Parliament, not town halls. Adele Merson, the political editor of the Press and Journal, invited councillors and candidates from the main political parties to join her in Aberdeen, and we invited our readers and listeners to send in their questions to put to the people who make decisions on your behalf. The panel, which included the outgoing leader, answered our listeners' questions on oil and gas, fairer funding for the North East, the local arts scene and a lack of rail provision, among many others. They also got to grips with the controversial progress of major infrastructure projects, including Union Test Gardens in the heart of the city. This episode is the final piece in the series, which also took in Dundee, Angus, Perth and Kinross and Fife, and they're all available as podcasts now. In Aberdeen, Adele was joined by Alex Nicholl for the SNP, Guy Ingerson for the Scottish Greens, Ian Yule for the Lib Dems, Jenny Lang, who's the current Labour leader, and Ryan Houghton for the Scottish Conservatives. Adele started with transport and asked Ryan if he backs pedestrianising Union Street. Um, we've, brought, we've been part of the plans that are brought forward for £150 million investment, and it's looked to pedestrianise that central section, support to be clear about that, um, as long as mitigations are put in place to ensure continued mobility and accessibility for everyone who wants to use our city centre. So, yes. Uh, Jenny? Yes, I'm in favour of pedestrianisation, as is the Labour group on Aberdeen City Council and the candidates who are standing for election. We feel that to reinvigorate the city centre, we need to do something different. We need to um, bring um, other businesses into that vacant units. It's quite clear from what we've heard from the property letting um, agencies within the city that that's what businesses want to see. We want to create a, a greener, cleaner environment for people who live and work and will visit the city centre. And I think pedestrianisation will do that. But we will have to make sure that there is accessibility for those with disability and also those who uh, find it difficult moving around. And we can mitigate that by working with the bus companies and indeed disability groups within the city to make sure that public realm meets everybody's needs and it's an accessible um, place for everyone in the city. I know, Ian, the opposition took a slightly different uh, take on this. What's what's the Liberal Democrat view? The Liberal Democrat view uh, remains that uh, Union Street should be, Central Union Street, should be pedestrianised, provided it's accessible to all. That's um, why we uh, supported reopening it, um, because it isn't currently accessible, but we want to see it closed to all traffic and we want to see it accessible. And can I say how delighted I am that both Ryan and Jenny have now come round to that point of view. Uh, Alex, please. Thank you very much. Um, I, I think we have to look at this uh, a little bit further out and say, what are we meaning by pedestrianisation? Because for some people, that has meant the closure of Union Street to all forms of traffic. Now, I think we can all agree that we don't think private cars should be travelling down Union Street. But I personally was very disappointed when the administration took a decision, contrary to what we had agreed in council, to use the spaces for people measures 
to close Union Street. Uh, I do think we need buses and taxis uh, accessing that area, not least of all because many people have mobility issues and those mobility issues sadly can only be addressed by some form of transport. I think we have an element of work to do. Uh, I don't think it was a good idea to actually take a decision and then go out and consult. I think that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. I think you need to consult when things are still at a formative stage in order that people can contribute to the debate uh, while you're still in the process of moving things along. So uh, I do think that we need uh, in the immediate future to return buses and taxis to Union Street. Interesting, we've known since around Christmas that that was going to be happening anyway because of the roadworks in Guild Street. Right, we'll just go to Guy and then we'll let others have an opportunity to come in. Guy, what's the Greens' viewpoint on this? Yeah, we support pedestrianisation, uh, much like other uh, members uh, here today. I would, I would say that we need to make sure there are accessible spaces. You know, we can look to Europe, so cities such as Utrecht, who've done this really, really well. Um, Berlin, other places. And I would actually say that it shouldn't just be limited to that section of Union Street. We should look at other areas in the city where pedestrianisation might work and might make it a more livable, friendly, child-friendly space for people. Thanks, Ryan. Just two quick points. First of all, um, we did consult people before we took the decision. Over nearly 8,000 people were consulted last summer. They gave us their priorities, we reflected on them and we implemented them. Every single business trade body in the city said that's what they wanted as well, as long as the business is along Union Street. So we did speak to them. Second of all, what pedestrian, because when people think of pedestrianisation, they look at that central section and they say, that's a bit, you know, um, it's not clean, it's not bright, it's not friendly. And that's why there will be millions of pounds of investment to make it a warm and welcoming space. So it's not what's there just now, it's what will be in those, those that vision's clear. Yeah. Just, just to come back, I totally agree with Ryan that there was a, a huge amount of consultation went in as we refreshed the city's Center master plan. Of those top 10 items, five of them related to Union Street and pedestrianisation was up there. We have to look at how we reshape the city centre and uh, that's what we have done with the master plan coming forward. We have to remember that £20 million of funding was secured for the BHS building, which people have supported. They want to see that refurbished. £20 million of that is predicated on pedestrianisation in the public realm around that. We have to bear that in mind. And the one thing that we've been saying to everybody is, you have to give certainty, whether it's residents or businesses, once you make that decision, you can then shape up the public realm to suit that scheme. If you don't do that, you end up with what we got in, in Broad Street, which was a public realm that was designed for pedestrianisation, but we have part pedestrianisation. And that has caused great difficulties for groups with disability, particularly those that are visually impaired. And that's why the decision around pedestrianisation must be taken. And then you work with the groups involved to draw up the public realm that makes it accessible for everyone. Right, just uh, we've got Alex and Ian, just final words on this. Thank you very much. A uh, couple of points to come back on. I think the interesting thing is when we've asked officers in committee uh, regarding the predicating of £20 million of investment on this, the answer has come back so far that there has been no uh, deep discussion and no actual uh, decision from the funding government uh, that they would actually require that to happen. So uh, I think that's very much up in the air and that's obviously something we would be quite happy to speak to anyone uh, regarding. I think also we have to look at, uh, as, as was mentioned, Broad Street. Broad Street has got many faults. Uh, it's been in, known about since about 2018. 
um, we have to take on board uh, those faults and actually address them, not least of all for things like guide dogs, which look for pavements when they're trying to guide people safely about. Um, we also have a large increase in the number of uh, green transport in the city in the form of hydrogen buses and the new 22 uh, electric buses from Stagecoach. So I think we can actually improve our city centre and make it a better place while still having accessibility for the public. And that's certainly the message that I and my colleagues have been receiving on the doors. Quickly, Ian. Well, those are the longest yes-no answers I've ever heard in 28 years as a councillor in Aberdeen. Uh, serious point, though, is on, on Broad Street. Uh, I'm delighted again now that Jenny recognises the issues with Broad Street. It was under the Labour and Conservative watch that the, the problems with on Broad Street were put in place. They were warned that it wasn't suitable space for people with disabilities. It's a still a no-go area for people with uh, visual impairment because of problems with the, the surfaces. They were warned about that and they proceeded uh, regardless. Shared surfaces don't work. Something is either a pedestrianised area or it's an area where some vehicles or at least run. Broad Street is not pedestrianised. It is two wide pavements with a bus route in the middle. Yeah, but let's, let's just come back on that because the whole aspect of that was this took four goes to get through council because people couldn't make up their mind what they wanted that public realm to look like. And, you know, quite rightly, disability groups have come back and said that there are certain aspects. The, the administration has been trying to change that, but we've come into difficulties to put the measures in place because Sustrans, who provided the funding, um, are difficult about putting in that uh, lighting and various things that need to go in, lighting columns, in respect of that, because they put the money forward for a pedestrianised space. And that's the whole aspect about when you bid for money and you tell people what you want to do with that space, they provide that money and you don't go through with it. And I hear what uh, Alex saying about we haven't heard from government, but that's because no final decision has been made on pedestrianisation because at the last meeting, the opposition pulled back from that. There is no certainty at the moment. And that's why if you want to move the city forward, you have to vote for parties like Aberdeen Labour who will do, do that. that. We need to move on now. We could probably debate that all hour. Uh, the next question we've got looks uh, obviously a big part of the regeneration of Aberdeen City Centre, includes a need to diversify what the city can offer to those who live and work here. We have a question from Kirsty, which asks, how will you support the local art scene and local artists? If I could go to Ian. Well, I think two things immediately. Um, the City Council, and there's been substantial agreement about, about this, uh, needs to provide the spaces um, for cultural and arts events. Uh, and we also, as a local authority, need to support individual events, individual ex exhibitions. Um, I must admit, I am not a big culture fan, as, as some of the people in this room have, have heard me say before, but it is vitally important for the, 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 the well-being of our city, the economic well-being of our city, and to make Aberdeen an even better place to live, to work, and to, to spend time and, and, and enjoy yourself. So our city centre cultural offering is vital. Um, I'd also like to see that expand outside the city centre, but our cultural offering in the city centre is, is, is vital. And whilst I may not be a massive fan of the design of the art gallery extension, as you look at it in the inside, it's absolutely fantastic. Ryan, would you like to take yeah, that? Yeah, um, venues absolutely, and that's why I'm glad we've continued to help the arts sector, providing um, very generous arrangements on venues, well-loved venues like Lemon Tree, His Majesty's Theatre, the Music Hall, the Arts Centre, other places. But it's about more than that. 
um, Spectra, New Art, True North, Granite Noir, fantastic events that pull people into our city centre and they make culture accessible for everybody. And so one thing I'm very proud of is that we've always managed to make these events either free or very low cost. And that's important because it cannot just be culture for one part of Aberdeen, it has to be accessible to all. And uh, any future administration I'm a part of will continue to do that. Guy, please. So I think one of the, the most important things is trying to look at pay and precarity in the arts sector locally and trying to remove barriers, particularly to working class artists. There's quite a few artists I know, particularly um, who have run Hysteria Aberdeen, who have discussed, you know, the amount of work that they've been doing to get a funding grant or to, you know, get funding through the council and the forms, you need a degree in form filling basically to get the funding that you need. I understand why that's the case, because obviously if you're taking public money, the public needs to know where it's going. But I think it's really important that we try and remove as many barriers as possible to, to young local artists and that we do look at spaces that can be provided for free, for example. So Hysteria Aberdeen, they use Spin, uh, one of the local businesses not far from here. But there's, there's venues that could be used, I think, and spaces that could be used far more effectively. So I think from, my, from the Green perspective, tackling barriers to local young artists is really, really important. Um, and I think we can do that fairly easily. Jenny? Yeah, um, I think there's been a good track record of the administration in the city investing in the arts and culture because we see that as a way of not just supporting young talent that's coming through, but also making sure that we create a vibrant place that people want to live in. I would agree with uh, what others have said around that support for, for artists and making sure that we have um, space available you know, we can look at the new gardens that are coming on stream. I think we can have space within there that can be utilised. And just at the budget, we supported Peacock Visual Arts in a project which is looking at using the vacant units on Union Street to um, provide space for local artists. And I think it's those types of things that will help to uh, support that local talent and anchor them here in the city, because that's the important thing. We don't want them leaving the city, we want the opportunities to be here for them, but it also gives us an opportunity to showcase their talents to the wider uh, public and uh, hopefully create that buzz around the city centre that people are looking for. Alec, please. Thank you. I think most of us are in complete agreement uh, about the importance that the arts play uh, in our lives, and I think we're all very supportive of it. Um, I was particularly disappointed that in the budget uh, we saw the administration remove funding which had only been agreed with uh, Aberdeen Performing Arts back in December but that aside I think we are all speaking with one voice that we do need to support the arts. I would like to see more going towards the smaller venues and the smaller presentations. Uh, I think we can all see the, the, the large scale uh, events that take place at places like Tekka or the Music Hall uh, and to a certain extent at the Arts Centre but I, I do think that there is uh, certainly more that can be done in terms of the uh, smaller venue or a pop-up style venue that could be happening in our city centre uh, and I think that is something that we really do have to promote in the coming years. Thank you. Like Quickly and then I'll just come back. Um, around APA, I mean, the, the £5 million of funding has gone into APA over the last five years. That's just through the general fund and various other aspects topped up through Common Good. But the reason around that removal of the, the funding was because of the different proposals that were put forward by opposition members in their motion, which meant that there was uncertainty around where that funding would come from moving forward. But what I would say is I'm absolutely delighted to see the APA have managed to move ahead with the proposals that they had 
um, in relation to that and the work is, is uh, about to start there. But certainly we have been supportive of APA throughout and will continue to do so because they're a very important organisation within this city. Just one final from Alex. I'm not sure Jenny and I were at the same meeting there. Um, I have a very different recollection of how that meeting uh, unfolded and it was the administration had it in the budget to remove that uh, funding and in fact I think it was in Councillor Houghton's speech um, but I'll let people go and research that for themselves. Thank you. Got another important issue which is the future of oil and gas and the just transition is obviously a pivotal issue in the Aberdeen and the wider northeast where the sector employs more than 65,000 people. Can the panel, ex sorry, this is one from Craig. Craig asks, can the panel explain how they would seek to restore confidence in the oil and gas industry following Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government's comments on Campbell and other new developments? I think we'll go to Alex first in this one. Thank you very much. Um, I, I think we can all agree, and I'm sure we're all going to agree, that oil and gas is going to be uh, in the northeast for many decades to come and it's going to play a vital role in our economy, both locally, nationally, and uh, in the wider part across the whole of the UK. Uh, I don't think that's actually going to change, and I don't particularly accept the premise um, that has been posed in the question uh, regarding that. Uh, I do think we're going to need oil and gas, just as we need to transition to a greener economy and we need to get to net zero as soon as possible. Uh, and I do think those things are actually going to take place together. Um, we are going to see uh, certainly an increase uh, in the green side of that development. Uh, I think Aberdeen is ideally placed uh, to deliver that, not only in geographical terms, but also with our highly experienced workforce uh, from the North Sea. Uh, I do think that we are in a situation where uh, we have seen people in the past say things such as, oh, oil and gas is going to run out. Well, people have been saying that since the 70s and, you know, it hasn't happened. Oil and gas is going to remain important. Decommissioning is probably going to become more important, but we're also going to see the rise uh, of green energy uh, and that's going to only be a good thing for our planet and achieving net zero. Thank Nicola you. Sturgeon's obviously said, you know, she wants to to shift away from, from fossil fuels. That's well, I think we have to start the transition somewhere and the transition starts now. If we had had this conversation 10 years ago, I think we would have probably had different answers from politicians across the political spectrum. But we have to start that journey and that journey is starting now and we're seeing vast sums of money, not only from governments coming into this, but we're also seeing private companies such as BP and Shell making huge investments into the green energy market. Now that can only be a good thing and we've seen BP partnering with uh, a German company that actually make uh, wind turbines. Now I for one think that is a good news story but it's the beginning of a journey and I think when people first looked at the northeast economy when oil first arrived uh, i think we heard all these doom and gloom stories uh, and it turned some of them turned out to not be correct it's actually been a great benefit to the northeast economy and i think this will be too the, the greens have obviously um 
made some comments around the future of the oil and gas industry that have been criticised uh, in the North East particularly. What would your party's um, response to this be? So I'll just come back on what Alex said. About 10 years ago, all the parties were in sync. That's not true. Scottish Greens have been talking about a transition for 30 odd years. At that particular point in time, the fossil fuel companies were spending millions, if not billions, on climate denial, trying to say that there was no problem. You know, we could have had a much slower transition if we had started then, but now we have to, you know, increase the pace of it. You know, we've already seen, I think there was figures out in the IPCC report of over 100,000 people directly dying from climate change. The, uh, I think it was maybe 2019, I might be incorrect about that date, but we can see that people are actually dying now. There's been huge floods in South Africa, which have caused all sorts of problems. People complain about things such as immigration, but that's nothing compared to what's going to happen when we have massive heat waves right now in India and Pakistan, which means it's unbearable for people to even be inside their own homes. You know, we have to look at what we do here. You know, we have to think globally and act locally. What we do here has an impact elsewhere. And we've already started seeing it here as well with Storm Arwen, etc. You know, we're seeing the impact of climate change. So we have uh, negotiated with the Scottish government a £500 million transition fund. Uh, 20 million pounds of that at the moment. It, there's an examination of which projects to to set that, give that money to. Too slow, well, it's important that we get it right. You know, it's really important. This is public money. We've seen in the past millions, if not billions, thrown away. Uh, Boris Johnson, in particular, is well known for throwing millions of pounds away on fanciful projects such as a bridge to Northern Ireland or a garden bridge, which then come but don't come to fruition. So it's really important that we get that right and we get the right projects that money. I think it's also important to note that it isn't just about transitioning from oil and gas into renewables. We're talking about home insulation here, rebuilding our railways, reopening rail lines. We're talking about nature restoration, of which we've delivered funds for as well. We're investing five billion pounds into, into rail, for example, and we're looking at feasibility studies linking uh, Peterhead and, and the Brock. So it's really, really important that we actually we look at it in the round, and that's what Greens are doing. And just right now, our MSP for the North East Maggie Chapman was at the Scottish Trade Union uh, Congress speaking to workers there and saying that exact thing, that a just transition should be worker and community-led, which is why exactly we oppose things like St. Fix Park, where the community haven't been listened to. I do know you, you said to myself the other week that you know some of the comments that your party has made nationally have been silly. So do you disagree with, with their approach? Well, having looked at those comments after, after making my own comments there, um, I think, to be honest, some of that was lost in translation. What was essentially being said was that some of the politicians who are really wanting to expand uh, oil and gas production at a time when we need to be looking at reducing demand as well as production have you know, been on the right, predominantly, but not exclusively. Now, if my party had been saying, you know, that oil and work, gas workers were the problem, then that would have been silly. Um, and I think, I think I'm a former oil and gas worker myself. I, you know, I do, did not get into politics to make my friends and family members unemployed. I got into politics because I could see that Aberdeen was at risk of becoming an old coal town. And we really need to avoid that situation. We've seen what happened when the pits closed across Scotland. And we really need to avoid that happening here. Ryan? Yeah, so Craig's question struck at 
you know, the confidence in the oil and gas sector. And the way we, the way we reverse that is by, first of all, we stop demonizing it. You know, tens and tens of thousands of people's jobs across the whole Northeast absolutely depend on those jobs. So we can't alienate it and we can't pretend that somehow, you know, it doesn't exist and it's not something that we want to see be successful. Guy mentions the report by the International Committee on the Collection of Prime, uh, sorry, Climate Change. And in that report, it recognizes there is still going to be continued need for uh, oil and gas extraction over a period of time. Now, the question is, do we want to maintain the uh, the industry that we have, the extremely high standards that have been set here, that we export around the world to other places, or do we want to shut everything we have down as quickly as possible and then the other countries that don't do it to the same level of our environmental standards and let them and then buy their oil and gas? Now, of course, it's going to be said that UK oil, uh, North Sea oil production is a small portion of that. That's true, but it's still an important amount for domestic supply and for energy security. And, you know, we heard that uh, 10 years ago we'd be having a different conversation. Well, I would just point out, 10 years ago, Aberdeen City Council with Labour, Conservative, Independent Administration was investing in hydrogen technology. We were looking at hydrogen renewable buses. So this is the energy renewable transition has been happening for a long time in Aberdeen already. And uh, we heard, I'll close on this, it was mentioned about um, you know, BP's partnership with, Germ with uh, places in Germany. We've got BP par partnerships here. We're going to be building a hydrogen hub. It's going to be one of the first of its kind in the UK um, for green hydrogen, which is incredibly important. So that work is ongoing. It will be a continuing story, and we should want the continued success of our industry and the job it supports. If it's one sentence. <laughs> very briefly, I will just say that we need to be very careful with hydrogen. We may, need to make sure that public investment is in green hydrogen, not in blue and brown hydrogen. I understand that, but I'm just saying going forward, I think that's really important. I think it's also important to recognise that when we're looking at hydrogen, it's most efficient to use that in heavy industries, such as cement and steel, steel mixing, not necessarily in transport and heating homes. I understand why people might want to move that way, because it's a much easier way. And the vast majority of hydrogen production of over 95% in the whole world is produced via fossil fuels. We're talking, we really need to invest in green hydrogen if that is to, is to make a massive change. Uh, Ian? Well, just on hydrogen, Guy makes a, a very important point about green hydrogen, and I suspect we'd all, we all would agree about that. Uh, just to slightly correct what uh, Ryan said, the, of course, the Aberdeen Hydrogen Project uh, was launched when the Liberal Democrats and the SNP ran Aberdeen City Council, and I'm, for one, I'm delighted that that's continued over the last 10 years. To, back to the, the just transition and uh, restoring confidence in the oil and gas industry, um, I think what the oil and gas sector need is certainty. Um, we need certainty to invest in decommissioning, um, to invest in new energy, uh, uh, clean energy processes and technology. Um, and to do that, they do need certainty. So I, for one, would oppose UK government windfall taxes. That's obviously well above my pay scale, and it's, in, it's, it's not what my party nationally says, or for that matter, Labour, but I think that's wrong because that will absolutely destroy confidence in the oil companies and energy companies in investing for the future. Um, successive UK governments have taken billions and billions and billions of pounds out of the Aberdeen and the North East and the oil and gas industry over the last around about 50 years. Um, and we need to see UK governments, not just the Scottish government, but we need to see the UK government investing in the North East to as payback for that massive amount of money that our communities have provided for the UK exchequer over the years. I believe we need vastly improved transport links. And that means electrification of the East Coast rail line from, from Edinburgh to Aberdeen, something that frankly should have happened decades ago, 
Um, we need to open, in terms of rail, we need new stations. We need that new line to Buchan, or new or renewed line to Buchan. But we also need investment in those emerging uh, industries. We need to train people, as a, as a society, we need to train people away from oil and gas jobs towards uh, those new, new clean energy industries and other industries and other businesses. We need government to invest in that. We need government support for new start businesses in the Northeast. And we need to accept, you know, we absolutely have to transition to net zero as quickly as we can. Yesterday is not soon enough. Okay. But some um, industrial processes will going to continue to need oil, at least in the short to medium term. And I'd much rather that was North Sea oil or west of Shetland oil than important oil from, from, a, from a, a energy security and to be blunt, at, you know, national security point of view. Um, but we, you know, so it's not just about the e almost the easy transitions are about fuel, about heating and about transport. The more difficult trans transitions are the technological processes that depend on oil. But that's I don't a, want to that cut uses, in, but we are going to have to well, find out. I have two bites of the cherry on this one already. Um, so <laughs> uh, we need to recognise that, that we need to transition as quickly as we can. Thank Any you, Adele. Finally on this one. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, thank, thanks for that, Adele. Um, I think because we host the oil and gas industry in this city, we've known for a long time that if we are to achieve net zero um, goals, we need to bring the industry with us. And that's what we have been doing over the last 10 years. Our city region deal was about that diversification of the economy. It was about, it was about that renewable energy piece and investing in that. And you know, I'm not surprised that Ian wants to jump on the bandwagon of uh, labour um, in respect of hydrogen. But you know, I think for maybe 10 minutes or something before they left office, they might have spoken about it. But the, the hydrogen strategy started in this city in 2015. And I suppose that's the disappointing thing because we've not seen government at either a Scottish government level or a UK government level come forward with plans um, quick enough in that respect. They're playing catch up when you look around Europe. Um, you know, I was listening to what Guy said there about uh, investment in renewable technology and the just transition. And that's the whole point because it's about making sure that the plans that we shape up have that just transition for those who are working in the industry at the moment and those that will come and live and work in Aberdeen in the future. But I have to say his green colleagues who sit as ministers in the Scottish government certainly don't have many ideas around those plans because I spoke with them just a few months ago about where they saw that investment going in and they didn't have a clue, if I'm honest. But it's unsurprising because their, their party was also the ones that wanted to um, disinvest from the what used to be the Oil and Gas Technology Centre, now known as the Net Zero, Technology Centre um, in their manifesto at the Scottish uh, parliamentary elections. They wanted money to be removed from that from the city deal. Now, it's exactly those types of organisations that will lead to the energy transition because they are bringing forward the technology and the, uh, adapting the skills that will be required. And that's the whole point about this. We don't have, I mean, we've got lots of skills in technology in oil and gas, but we aren't able to make that switch um, you know, in a matter of months. And that's the whole thing about this. We have to protect jobs in the Northeast while we make that transition into renewable energy. But we have a good track record in Aberdeen. We work with BP and other oil companies like Shell because we realise that we have to bring the industry with us. And that's what we should be doing. Now, I can see that people are getting agitated by some of the things that I've said there. But that is the reality of the situation. And we've seen with the Ukraine situation just how energy security can be affected 
by uh, events that we have no control over. And that's why we must protect oil and gas, we must protect jobs within oil and gas, and we must work with the industry to get that cleaner, greener environment that we all want. And I'll just finish on the point that I think um, Ian had raised about the windfall tax, because Labour are in, in favour of a windfall tax. And I think that's the right way to go, because the cost of living crisis that people are living through at the moment is horrific. Some of the oil and gas companies are making £44,000 of profit each minute of every single day. What we are advocating is a year, 10% extra on corporation tax. That money will go in to protect those who are struggling with fuel and uh, food poverty at the moment. And I think that's the right way to go because when investments are made by oil companies, they're made years in advance. I don't think the profits that they didn't realise they were going to have, because when Labour first suggested this, it was 1.2 billion would be raised from it. It's now 3 billion. I don't think that the, that the fact that that money will go to shareholders will have any effect on the investment that's been made by oil companies and um, moving forward. And that's why it's the right thing to do, because it helps the man right, in the street, but also looking at energy transition. I would, just, I would just say it's, it's laughable to say that Lorna Slater doesn't know what she's talking about. She's a renewable engineer, project engineer, worked in renewable energy for, for years. She knows what she's talking about. I would also say, you know, it, it's, it's a tad unfair to talk about discussions that you've had when people aren't necessarily in the room to defend themselves. I would just say that. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to, to some of the things that Jenny was speaking about, there is some agreement, actually. I think, you know, she's bang on the money when it comes to a windfall tax. But the problem with that is Labour's being dishonest. That's not going to happen after these elections. These are local council elections. Councils do not have the power to levy a windfall tax. And it's very dishonest to run a campaign based on that. I think you had one final word on this. One final word, uh, Adele. Obviously, you and I met with the First Minister earlier this week. Uh, I think there was some very uh, positive messages came out of that, not least of all uh, the issue of setting up a task force in order to address how we transition and take our skilled workforce from the energy sector in oil and gas and into green energy. And I think that's an exciting thing that we as a council need to be facilitating as much as we can between the various parties, because I think we are ideally placed to do that. Uh, and that would certainly be a priority for me in the coming years. Okay. Thank you. Uh, moving on to funding, obviously councils in the North East have been amongst the lowest funded in the country for quite some time, I believe, and there have been repeated calls for more cash from the government. Scott has asked the following question. Aberdeen is hugely underfunded compared to other parts of Scotland and particularly the Central Belt. Can the candidates explain how they would campaign for more funding from Holyrood? Ian? Well, first to answer Scott's question, absolutely yes, Aberdeen has Aberdeen City Council has been consistently underfunded uh, relative to other councils since it was first created. And over those 27 years, um, Aberdeen City Council is the lowest funded council. Um, and that's the dramatic impact on the services that Aberdeen City Council has been able to provide for residents in our city, regardless of which political party or parties happens to be in, in power at the time. Uh, my view is that we need to work together as a team across the parties and across the wider community to, to lobby both the Scottish Government and COSLA uh, to change the, Scottish, the, the funding formulas for Scottish Councils so that Aberdeen gets a fair or even, even a fairer deal. I mean, I've challenged ministers of different parties over the years with this question and nobody yet has given me a satisfactory um, answer. 
Why do they think it takes less to pay a teacher in Aberdeen than elsewhere in Scotland? Thanks for listening to this special edition of The Stushy. The original debates were filmed at DC Thompson head office in Dundee and the Press and Journal's office in Aberdeen. They can be watched in full by going to the P&J and Courier websites and heading to the politics pages. Thanks to Adele Merson for hosting, Stushy producer Morvan McIntyre, the teams in Aberdeen and Dundee, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back soon with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so that you can be better briefed. The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities, so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.